Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thank you, Father, for a beautiful day, your day on which we gather to worship you as the one God and creator. Send your spirit to be with us and guide our hearts and minds as we celebrate your love for us. Cause us to take every action, every thought, captive for the sake of the gospel and our relationship with you. And thank you for the grace that you continually demonstrate towards us. Be with Robbie as he instructs us in your word and help us always to see your gracious love for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray for Mike and Sandy Whitten as Mike is battling pancreatic cancer. Be a constant presence for them in this time of great uncertainty. Grant them confidence and peace in your provision and bring healing, we pray. Bless Louise Slingluff as she is in the hospital. Pray for her care and prompt recovery. We ask that you surround Lane Jones with your loving kindness and that you bring healing. Bless her, bless her and her family as they care for her. We pray for our junior high group as they prepare for their beach retreat next week. Go before and with them to help keep them safe, coordinate the details and logistics, and to bless them with spiritual growth and encouragement. We pray for our long-range planning team as they study our church and consider its future plans. Animate their efforts with your spirit and provide them with the resources and wisdom needed to reflect your will for covenant. We also pray for our mission partner, Susie Triplett, as she serves in Thailand, a nation where it's very difficult to legally share the gospel. Bless her, give her wisdom, protection, and encouragement as she works to advance your kingdom. Tell her how very much you treasure her and cause her to be an aroma in the life of the people of Thailand. We pray for our mayor, our governor, and the president, and all of our elected and appointed representatives, and ask that you would work in and through them to perfect your will. Father, we offer our prayers to you, confident that Jesus is here among us and that you hear us, so we rejoice and bring our request to you in his most holy name. Amen. Well, Henry has been leading us in this worship service, and Will just prayed for us. Last week, Henry, Will, and I were not here. We were in Honduras at Sovereign Grace Presbyterian Church with five other people, or eight of us down there uh, last week, and it was a great trip, and we look forward to telling you more about it. Uh, we were there on Sunday. It was great, but we landed on Friday, and on Friday, uh, Aaron and Alex Halbert uh, took us to a really significant place. They took us to a a home uh, for people with various kinds of disabilities, mostly children and a few adults. It was kind of a heavy place, honestly. Uh, there's, in Honduras, 73% unemployment. It's a place with pretty crippling poverty in lots of places, uh, lots of the time. And this was a home for people uh, who weren't seen as contributors to their culture or families. Lots of their families dropped them off abandoned them, but they were taken in and brought to this home and they were being raised and cared for well, but it, you could feel the heaviness of the place. At one point we went into a home where a lot of these uh, children were being loved and cared for very well. As we went in that home, we uh, saw some of the children and met some of the young 
uh, some of the young house mothers who were like in their early 20s living in the home, taking care of the girls in this particular home. And then we went into this back room. In this back room, uh, there was a woman in there. She had dark brown hair. I didn't even get her name. And we were watching her, and the person introducing us to her was telling us that she had been there for 30 years. She started as a house mother, and now she was basically running activities for all the people that lived in the home. And on this particular day, she was with three uh, people, three residents of that home, and they were just doing needlepoint crafts and having a really good time. And the thing about her that made her stand out was this sense of remarkable contentment and joy. It was like there was music playing that only she could hear. And it's my privilege and my responsibility and joy today to help you hear the same music. The Apostle Peter, the very one who wore those sandals in the first century and walked with Jesus Christ, wrote this letter that we're studying now, 1 Peter. He wrote it in the first century uh, to people who lived after the life of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he had saved them. And the the first recipients of this letter, they, they heard the news about Jesus. They believed that he had lived and died and rose again. And they were waiting for his glorious return. The first audience of this letter were people living between the first coming of Jesus Christ, his humble coming, his humble life, his crucifixion in the place of the wicked who would believe in him, his resurrection to new life. They were living after that, waiting for his glorious return. Even though they lived a couple thousand years ago, people living in the exact same situation, not the same culture, not the same time, but living in between Christ's two advents. That was the original audience and that's us as well. And this is an epistle of hope, Peter wrote, because he is tuning his audience, including you and me today, into the great saving work of God himself. You and I can have hope in every circumstance, in every situation, because we're God's people. We belong to God. He's begun a good work in us, and he has a plan for us that takes us into eternity. So if you will, let's read this passage together, 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. Uh, Last week, uh, John told us that Uh, Peter told his audience that they should be blessing God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because by his great mercy, he had given them and us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You and I are living in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only that, he had given them, he had reserved for them an inheritance that was never going to fade, never going to go away, never going to be diminished. That would be revealed to them on that last time. And so now we'll continue on since that's true. And since their faith was going to bring them praise and glory and honor in Jesus, when he's revealed, then Peter continues in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy or I am holy. And if you call upon the father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, the perish- not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Through him you trust in God who raised him from among the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God who speaks, God who has spoken through the scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ. Your word is bright and clear, but our hearts and minds are dim. Illumine us. Turn the lights on in our hearts so that we will rejoice and share in the hope that your people have in every age and in every place those who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as we do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today is trying to help us live in the wake of the resurrection. Our passage today reminds us when we live and who we are, simply that we live after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and before he returns in glory. It's really important to understand that the way we're going to be exhorted in the passage today assumes that we're God's beloved adopted children saved by God's grace with a, with a great plan of God unfolding in our lives. And I want you to hear some things the passage won't say today. Be holy so God will love you one day. That's not what our passage says. Be holy. Because if you are really, really holy, one day God might adopt you. One day God might forgive you. If you're really holy and you try really hard, one day you might earn an inheritance. The passage never says anything like that. The passage assumes that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've been rescued by his grace, that you've been adopted by God, that you belong to him. And then because those things are true, the passage does tell us to be holy, to set ourselves apart. So I want you to understand that as we go into the passage. The first thing that Peter tells us here is he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Note the first word of our passage is the word therefore. Here's something you can always do when you're reading the Bible. When you bump into the word therefore, you can simply say, what's the therefore Therefore, and the therefore is there because Peter has already announced what John preached to you last week is that you've been giving a, you've been given a living hope, not by your own efforts, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because you believe in him, you're connected to him. He's alive in power. You're connected to him. So Jesus Christ is your hope. And because you're in Christ, you have a living hope. You've been rescued by God's grace. You are being changed by God's grace. And one day you're going to be perfected. And so that's the angle from which Peter begins. And since Peter has announced that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and an inheritance that he earned for us that we'll get one day, he says, therefore, 
Since you are God's people, since you are saved by God's grace, since you are God's adopted children, therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on some more grace, the grace that's going to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what's he talking about? First of all, here he tells them to set their hope. He tells them to take responsibility for something, and that's to get their hope secured and set, focused. Uh, God secures it for us, but he wants us to to set our hope, to get our hope focused on the future promised grace of God. It's like this. A lot of us in this room have learned to fish. Um, My dad learned patience teaching me how to fish, but we've all learned to fish. And so at some point in your life, you get rid of that cork, you know, that's bobbing in the water and you learn to hold that fishing pole and you learn to be still and you learn to be quiet and you, you've learned to bait your hook and your hook is in the water and you're holding on to that fishing pole and you're waiting and waiting and waiting to feel those nibbles. And when you feel that little bit of tension in your pole because the fish are nibbling on the bait and which means they're on the hook, what do you do? You pull and you begin to reel. reel. Why? Because you're going to set the hook. You do something that pulls the hook that's there into that fish's mouth. And then, of course, if you're good at it, you pull it into the boat, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's kind of what Peter is saying to you and me here. God has done everything that's necessary for your salvation. Your hope is in the grace of God that's coming uh, with Jesus Christ. And he's revealed that future grace, but he wants you to do something, to set your hope, to focus your hope. And here's how he wants you to do it. He uses two metaphors that are really helpful. The first one, in, in the Greek text, he tells them to gird up the loins of their minds. So that's, we wouldn't know what that meant, but so we translate it to prepare your minds for action. Uh, but this is what, this is the metaphor he uses, gird up the loins of your minds. And in the ancient world, when they wore long flowing cloaks, if someone stole their camel, uh, they had to go chase that person. And if they hadn't girded up their loins, if they hadn't taken their long cloak, pulled it up and tucked it into their belt, when they began to run, they would trip over their own garments. So gird up the loins of your minds, verse 13, it means to get prepared, get ready to take action. Gird up the loins of your minds, prepare your minds for action, take your long flowing garment, tuck it in your belt, be ready, be ready to respond. This is what God told his people when they were in Egypt. At one point, God's people were slaves in Egypt. And God said, I'm going to come and save you powerfully. I'm going to rescue from the Egyptians, but I want you uh, to be ready. I want you to gird up your loins because when I come and save you, we're going to get you out of Egypt really fast and you've got to be ready. And that's, that's what Peter is saying here. He wants you to prepare your minds to setting your hope, preparing your minds. These things work together. He wants you to take responsibility to focus your mind on who God is and what he's promised you. And then he says, he explains how you do that. And he he wants you and me to be sober-minded. Not fuzzy. Not unclear, but sober-minded. And what is it that makes us sober-minded? Setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here's, here's how the whole thing works. Here's how the, all of it gets pulled together. Jesus is, gonna, is going to come back in power and glory. And here's what Peter's saying. I want you to focus on that. Jesus is going to come back in power and glory, and he's bringing grace. And when he brings grace, he's going to complete the work that he's begun in you. 
Uh, you're rescued, you're forgiven, you belong to God, but you're not perfected yet. And when Jesus comes back in power and glory, he is gonna take that work that he's begun in you and bring it to completion. He's gonna perfect you, but he's gonna come back in power and glory. And Peter is basically saying, I want you to set your minds on that. I want that to be your focus. And think about how how that makes you sober-minded. Only if it's true. If King Jesus, who is the Son of God, who added our humanity to himself, lived the life we failed to live, died in the place of the wicked, and then was raised again, vindicated as the only obedient son. If he really is raised from the dead and he really lives and he ascended to heaven, and if one day he's gonna come back in power and glory and everyone will acknowledge that he is the true king and the true Lord, if that's gonna happen, it's sobriety to live like it's true now. And if he's going to come back in his power and his glory with grace for those who believe in him, to live like that's never going to happen, that's in sobriety. If you're living like King Jesus is never coming back, you're living like you're drunk. That's that's Peter's main point. If your life is angled toward the return of Jesus Christ in his power and his glory and his perfecting grace for you, then you're sober-minded. But if your life is untethered to the return of Jesus Christ in his power and glory and grace, then you're living drunk. It's that simple. And Peter would have you and me live lives that are prepared, ready for action, sober-minded. That is focused on the return of Jesus Christ with all that future grace. Read the words with me again. Set your hope fully. This is what it means to be sober-minded. Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, as we drove away uh, from that home for the children of disability, and we sort of, a couple of us noticed that woman that had been there for 30 years, and we began to discuss her life, and here's what we said, not one hour wasted. Not one day wasted. Sitting with small children, with great disabilities, showing them love and compassion, teaching them little things to add joy and hope to their lives. That's not a wasted life. No, no, no. A life well lived. A life lived in the light of the saving power of Jesus Christ and his returning, his return in power and glory. And so Peter goes on and says, not only do you set your hope fully on this grace that will be brought to you, the future grace, But in light of the present grace, the past grace, you have been saved. The present grace, Christ is alive. He's your living hope. And the future grace, uh, Peter now tells us to set our lives apart. Look with me in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There was a time you didn't know God. So think about Peter talking in this his original context, some of the audience would have been Jews um, that are believers, but many of them would have been Gentiles um, who were new believers in Christ. And they would have, in the past, they would have worshiped crazy gods, gods that weren't true gods. But here's one thing that was true of pagan gods. Uh, They were a lot like people. They indulged their appetites and the gods can indulge their appetites more than we could because they had more power and more privileges. And that's what the gods like. The gods were made in the images of broken rebellious humans 
So gods were basically big, powerful, indulgent creatures that ran around the heavens. You had to keep them happy, uh, but they were up there having a big, a, a big wild party, basically. But Peter's like, wait, 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 wait. That's the way you used to think when you thought when the gods were made in the image of humans, but that's not, that's not what the true God is like. The true God is distinct from all those false gods and the true God is distinct from all he's made. The true God is holy and that God has adopted you. So I, now I want you to be distinct. God is set apart from every other false God and everything that he's made. He's righteous and just and true and holy and kind and generous. And I want you to be like him. You know, we just read Revelation, sorry, um, Leviticus, that's, just, that's, that's not the same book, uh, Leviticus 19, much earlier. And God said, be holy for I'm holy. And when he say that all the, those, those laws, those weird laws about the harvest, be generous to the poor. I'm holy, be like me, I'm generous to the poor. Be holy for I, I'm holy, don't lie, don't steal, honor the aged, I want you to take care of the refugee and the immigrant. Be holy for I'm holy. I want you to become like me. I don't want you to be like the nations that are like the gods they made in their own image. You're made in my image. I want you to be distinct and be holy. And that's what Peter is saying here. He actually quotes Leviticus 19. Be holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. And look look what he says. Be holy in all your conduct. Please, just for a minute, on a piece of paper, if you've got a pen, write down all those areas of your life that God doesn't care about. We're done, aren't we? Be holy in all your conduct and all your relationships and all of your doings and all of your business practices and all the ways you spend your time. Uh, The whole of your life is before a holy God. And God wants you to be distinct in the whole of your life because God is a holy God and he's calling you not out of the world to be in it, but not to be of it, to be the people that he's rescued us to be, to reflect his character. You see, there's a pattern contrast. They used to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance when they didn't know who God was, was, but now they're supposed to be patterned after the perfections of our heavenly father. Don't you see what an amazing privilege that is? This is just the practical outworking of adoption. Who adopted you? The one true God. And now he's saying, you're my children, be like me. I know that can sound oppressive and and scary, but it's the opposite. The one true God who made the worlds, who made all things, has adopted you and made you his very own. We we are made, our hearts are wired to be patterned after impressive things. That's why we imitate athletes that we like or, or leaders that we like. And we end up kind of becoming like, talking like, acting like people that impress us. You were made in the image of God. And the one who, the one true God who made every impressive thing and every impressive person has adopted you and made you his very own. And he says, now you belong to me and I want you to become like me. And that is freedom and privilege and joy. And if you don't believe that, something's wrong. It's life to be like God. For God is the source of true life itself. And then that leads in this next thing in verse 17. uh, Paul, excuse me, Peter wants to talk about true reverence. The fear of God that we all need to think about. 
Verse 17, and if you call upon the Father, once again, what a privilege. (laughs) If you call God your Father, who is this Father? He's the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. If you know God and you know he's your Father and he's the impartial judge who will hold us accountable for our speech life and our motives and our thought life and our actions, then we should conduct ourselves in holy reverence, in true fear. I was reading this passage and knew I was going to preach it soon. And and over this last week, I thought, man, when's the last time I heard a sermon on the fear of the Lord? I was like, when's the last time I preached a sermon on the fear of the Lord? What's more sober-minded than to hold God in very high reverence? Either there is one true God or there isn't. If there's one true God and he is greater than all that he's made, to hold him in high reverence is the ultimate sobriety of mind. And to act like in in any area of life that there isn't one true God and that he won't hold us accountable, that's insobriety. That's drunk drunk thinking once again. Now, what does this mean, this, this judgment? This is the ultimate judgment of accountability. Peter here is not talking about uh, earning your, your way into eternal life or anything like that. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's lived the life you failed to live. He died in the place of your rebellion, your sin, and your wickedness. He was raised again. If you believe in Jesus, your sins are completely paid for. You have no guilt. You have no shame before God. And his righteousness belongs to you. You are justified and you'll live forever by faith in Jesus Christ. And on that great and final day, you'll be held accountable. I know this is true because the Bible tells me as a preacher and teacher of God's word, I'll be held to a higher standard than those who listen. Accountability is a real thing. And Peter here is saying, if you know God as your father, your father will hold everyone accountable and there'll be no partiality. He'll be impartial in that holding people accountable. So think about just for a minute how that might work out in your life. Maybe you've noticed that you're good at helping people get along and you see yourself as a relational guru of sorts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you're helping people get their relationships reconciled, but it doesn't have reference with who God is and how great he is and how the gospel works, then your relational wisdom isn't really worth all that much in the long haul. Maybe you're really good at helping people uh, acquire wealth and, and, and invest and have a great uh, retirement and even have wealth for the succeeding generations. That's great, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if your planning and management and the wisdom you share about wealth um, isn't, doesn't begin with the fear of the Lord, then ultimately it isn't worth very much. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So to rightly view myself and view my attitudes and view my actions is to view myself before the one true holy God who graciously but truly will hold me accountable for all these things. And so that moves us into the second part of our passage, verses 18 and following. How in the world are we going to set ourselves apart and live by this holy reverence? Well, here's what Peter comes on and says. He wants you to know how you were set apart and he wants you to know when you were set apart. So you look at it with me in the passage. How are we going to live before a holy God? Uh, Well, by trusting in his grace, but also it helps to know how and when we were set apart. Look with me, first of all, 
how you were set apart. Verse 18, you can live this way knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See what Peter's saying here? You can live holy lives and God is going to give you what you need to live holy lives because you're no longer slaves. God and his love and his big plan has ransomed you. He ransomed you by sending his own son to shed his blood on the cross for you and your sins. You're no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to live in bondage. The slate's been cleared. You're fully forgiven and you're no longer a slave. You belong to God. You've been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. God didn't pay $10,000 to ransom you. No, he sent his son to become a human and pay for your sins on the cross. You weren't ransomed by $10 million or $10 billion. No, you were ransomed by something far greater than trillions and trillions of dollars. You were ransomed by the blood of Christ. That's how you were set apart by God for him and his purposes. Now I want you to see when you were set apart. It's when Christ was set apart for you. Christ who shed his blood for you. He, verse 20, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. See, God had one big plan to rescue a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And God's plan was always to send his son. That was his plan before the beginning of all things, before the foundation of the earth. And it was revealed in these last times for you. So you would know that you were set apart by the love of God before all eternity. And now you've been ransomed and rescued by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You belong to God. It's God who wants you and me to be holy. It's God who wants you and me to learn to live in holy reverence of God for who he is. And all of his grace is operative to that end. I was walking out in my office. I didn't say this, the eight o'clock service, but I was walking in my office and I saw this in my door. And my daughter Ellie made this for me when she was in elementary school. There's her name, Ellie. You can't see it. But it's quoting Jesus when in John 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. When Jesus said that, that got him in some trouble. But what was Jesus saying? I was here before Abraham. He could have said before Noah, I am. He could have said before Adam and Eve, I am. He could have said before the creation of the world, I am. And I want you to know that before anything was created by Jesus, the son who is the agent of the creation of all things, he was foreknown as your savior. The father knew he was going to send his son for your salvation before the foundation of the very earth to make you his very own. So if you need help and encouragement and hope that you can change by the grace of God, know that this has been God's plan for you from before you were, before your great-great-great-grandparents wondered if they would have a fourth generation. Long before that, God's plan was to rescue by his grace, make us, not just individually, make us his holy people and transform us into a people that reflect his grace and his glory. We did fly to Honduras last week and 
uh, you know, it always cracks me up. The stewardesses get up there and they demonstrate how to do these very complicated things like buckle your seatbelt. Um, and it just you know, always makes me laugh. But it, it was a reminder. Planes do have trouble. There is turbulence. And sometimes it's worse than that. And the stewardess, I, I've, I've flown many times. I've flown to lots of countries and lots of places. And the stewardess has never said, hey, if it gets really turbulent or gets really bad, hold on to yourself. Hold on tight. Nope. What do they say? Fasten your seatbelt. The truth is you're linked to the strong thing, to the powerful thing, the thing you can't count on yourself in a really bad situation at 40,000 feet in the air, but you're strapped to the powerful thing. And I mentioned that in the last service and Eric Getty said, here's what you said, you should have said at the end, Jesus isn't my co-pilot, he's my airplane. And that's the truth. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're anchored to the one who lived the perfect life, who died in your place, who rose again, who will return full of grace and power to complete what he began in you. And today he's here to strengthen you and me to that end, even at his table as we come to him by faith. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for rescuing us and making us your people Would you give us a hunger for holiness, but also a great hope that you supply all the things that you command. Now, even as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, give us the grace and the strength that we need to be sober-minded, to set our hope on you, to live for you in the present because all things are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.